Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the morning report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because, you know, IBD is such a hot topic on the board exams. And someone's already going to ask me why. Because it's all about rheumatology. Rheumatology is kind of creeping into every part of the boards. You know, being a lung doctor, it's no longer about bronchodilators and inhaled steroids. It's all about these IL-5 inhibitors, these IL-4, 13 inhibitors. And of course, now it's going into GI. And we use a lot of these DMARDs and biologic and small molecule, molecule drugs in IBD. So let's talk about it. So, you know, when you ask me, when, when, what is IBD? What's the, the pathogenesis behind it? The answer is, I don't know. It's idiopathic, but we do know it's a chronic inflammatory condition. We know that it involves two main things, right? It's going to be ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And if you were to ask me, you know, what are the two things that probably predispose someone to getting this? What's going to be that baseline pathogenesis? Number one, genetic. It's got to be genetic. Having a family history is going to be a huge risk factor. And also, there's got to be an abnormal immune response. And why do I know the immune system is going to be involved? Because we're using what? These biologics and DMARDs and small molecules. So there's going to be that abnormal immune response secondary to this endogenous gut bacteria. So what are those risk factors, number one? I want everyone to you know, take out their favorite little highlighter over here if you're taking notes and highlight what? Family history, okay? And there is a approximately 10% you know, risk for first-degree relatives of affected patients, you know what I mean, of getting IBD. So that's going to be very important. Now, I always like to talk about smoking, but this is a classic board statement right here, is that smoking tobacco use increases the risk of Crohn's disease, but then it's kind of protective for ulcerative colitis. So they always like the trick that's kind of a memorizing thing, you know. So Crohn's disease, it's going to be a huge risk factor, but a little protective when we talk about ulcerative colitis. IBD has a bimodal age presentation. Its peak incidence is in the second and to fourth decade of life with a less prominent second peak in the seventh to eighth decades of life. When we talk about IBD, you know, just like rheumatology, Rheumatoid arthritis is not just disease of the joints, it's disease of every single organ in the body. Same thing when we talk about IBD, it's more than just a GI tract. In fact, 30% of patients with IBD at some point will have extraintestinal manifestations. On the boards, what is the most common extraintestinal manifestation? Well, it's going to be peripheral arthritis, right? And when I'm teaching, you know, uh, rheumatology, we talk about these seronegative spondyloarthropodies, those, those ones that have an oligoarticular asymmetric presentation. Yeah, I think about, you know, these IBD patients. So peripheral arthritis. So what about the skin? 
Can uh, IBD have some skin manifestations? Well, look at these pictures. Now, what did I put here on the bottom? Erythemonodosum. Of course, this is not pathognomonic. Where do we see erythemonodosum? What about sarcoid? What about infections like tuberculosis? What about coccidioides emetis? What about streptiogenes? You know what I mean? So all these different things. And then right above it, what do we see over here? This is like a horrible like skin lesion called pyroderma gangrenosum. Can IBD affect the eye? Of course, it can cause scleritis and episcleritis. You definitely can infect the uvea. You know what I mean? Not only can it give you an anterior uveitis, you know what I mean? It can definitely give you a posterior uveitis. They need people with IBD should definitely follow up with an ophthalmologist. You know, and one of the things when we talk about the liver that you need to think about in someone with ulcerative colitis especially is going to be what? primary sclerosing cholangitis, you know, it could happen in both Crohn's and UC, you know what I mean? So it's something to think about, especially if the alkaline phosphatase is going up, physical findings, elevated bilirubin, think about primary sclerosing cholangitis. So you're going to ask me, well, how do you diagnose IBD, everyone? Well, of course, you can think about the clinical presentation. And let's be honest, you want to diagnose IBD, what do you got to do? You got to biopsy, you got to scope, you got to throw the scope in there somewhere. So of course, endoscopic appearance is important. You got to think about the histological examination. And I put this cartoon here because there's definitely going to be some buzzwords out there that you got to know for the boards, right? And when we think about ulcerative colitis, what is the classic buzzword? Crypt. Think about those crypt abscesses that could happen there. Notice how the whole colon is involved. It's kind of that con continuous, superficial, you know? But with Crohn's disease, what's going to be the buzzword you'll think about that cobblestoning that cobblestone pattern and of course notice how it's kind of from the mouth all the way to the anus when we think about crohn's there's these skip lesions that's going to be involved and of course i really kind of blew up the what the ilium i mean the ilium definitely is a very common place to be involved when we think about crohn's and in young folks it can mimic one kind of like an appendicitis so, of course, radiographically, we, you know, many people will get imaging of the abdomen because they're having pain. Truth be told, based on imaging by itself, you can't diagnose IBD, but you will get imaging if you worry about what? Obstruction, if you worry about a fistula of some kind. And probably one of the most important things is going to be number five, which is what do you got to exclude? Infections, especially if you're giving steroids and TNF inhibitors and immunosuppressants. But Look at this bottom bullet point here. IBD should be considered in any patient who has chronic or bloody diarrhea. And with bloody diarrhea being said, there are two things I always want you to rule out. Number one is gonna be when we talk about that shiga toxin produced by things like E. coli. And you could rule that out by doing what? Some really simple stool tests. And of course you must also exclude what? C. diff, especially if you have a history of what? Antibiotic use. So other things that are kind of packaged in there when we talk about evaluating IBD is going to be what? Something called fecal calprotectin. And so this may be something that you could order if you have someone who has symptoms that are poorly irritable bowel syndrome, but you just want to make sure there's not like a component of IBD, you could check fecal calprotectin. But clinically, many doctors that manage IBD will use fecal calprotectin to assess the efficacy of treatments. You know what I mean? And based upon different levels, when it comes back, it can help be helpful in predicting relapses or flares. Because it's a room disease, of course, there, there got to be antibodies somewhere. And the two antibodies that jump to mind for IBD are anti-saccharomyces cerevisiae and, of course, the Pianca antibodies. You know, 
you know, their role in diagnosis is not clearly defined and they should not replace, you know, getting a biopsy or doing a scope in making the diagnosis. And of course, I mentioned just already, if you have an elevated alkaline phosphatase, of course, you want to consider it like a primary sclerosing cholangitis. So I want to say a couple of things about Crohn's and you see that Crohn's, once again, you know, a sort of uncertain etiology buzzword when we talk about the inflammation is transmural, transmural inflammation of the entire GI tract. But remember that when I say the entire GI tract, let me kind of break down of what areas are going to be more involved versus not. 80% of people have small bowel involvement. A third of those have ileitis exclusively. 50% of patients will have ileocolitis. 20% will have disease limited just to the colon itself. And less than 5% will get mouth, those aptus ulcers or gastroduodenal disease, you know. And only a third of patients will have perianal disease. So when we talk about these clinical manifestations of Crohn's, what are going to be some of the things I want to mention? Abdominal pain. And the key thing is this abdominal pain is regardless of distribution. And remember, because it's a transmural disease, you are prone to get these fibrotic strictures. The diarrhea in Crohn's disease is not going to be that bloody, volumeless diarrhea. Uh, diarrhea. It tends to be kind of secondary to uh, like malabsorption. Why is because what is the most common place involved in the GI tract? It's the terminal ileum. And what do we reabsorb there? Things like bile. So you could have more of that malabsorptive type of like diarrhea. And they're more tend to be, uh, you know, guaiac positive than have the grossly bloody diarrhea that we see with UC. That's going to be that superficial sloughing of the mucosa. And of course, I mentioned fistulas, these abnormal connections. And you can get fistulas from colon to colon, colon to bladder, colon to skin, you know, so, you know, it, it, it is horrible to have these. So when we talk about how do we treat people with Crohn's disease, well, it's really based upon a severity index, you know, and this is something that, you know, the GI attendings and fellows are going to be discussing when they see these patients and they could say their disease activity index is asymptomatic, they're in remission, it's mild to moderate, moderate to severe, which is when we start considering using these biologics like these TNF inhibitors. Or they could have severe fulminant disease, meaning that they're having symptoms despite being on steroids and biologics, you know. And this being said, because many patients with Crohn's disease unfortunately ultimately require some kind of surgical intervention, there are going to be these advances in medical therapy. Some of these DMARDs, some of these, you know, biologics and small molecules that have actually coincided with a decreased rate of having surgery. So this is a good thing. This is a good thing, but always do consider surgery if you're worried about bowel obstruction, abscesses, porphyration, or even some refractory disease. So what are gonna be the treatments when we talk about Crohn's disease, everyone? I remember when I was in med school and training, you say the word IBD and everyone starts yelling out five ASAs. And it's not like that anymore, you know? And especially with Crohn's disease, there is a super limited role for 5-ASAs. In some cases, some GI doctors will say even no role for 5-ASAs. So it's not, when I see this, my first bullet point is their role in Crohn's is very limited and controversial. Most likely you use this in some of the very mild, Crohn, very mild Crohn's disease who states, I just don't want to be on steroids. But 
clinically, what is probably the, the first practical first line thing for Crohn's disease? It's going to be oral steroids. Which ones do we use? Probably, you know, enteric coated budesonide or prednisone. But I agree. Steroids have many side effects. And of course, we want to take them off the steroids as quickly and safely as possible. If you have moderate severe Crohn's, you can think about TNF inhibitors and other biologics that we're going to talk about. When you use TNF inhibitors, particularly, you know, we know now that TNF inhibitors, especially two of them, Humira, which is adalimumab, and uh, infliximab, which is Remicade, you could get the development of antibodies against these TNF inhibitors. So we commonly combine these with medications like an Imuran or methotrexate to help out with preventing these antibodies from getting formed. And if someone flares up with Crohn's disease, of course, before we blast them with steroids, we always worry about bacterial overgrowth. So we may give a, a course of antibiotics first. So what is my general rule when I think about Crohn's? We definitely want to use drugs that have a, a long track record, good safety profile. In some cases, how is the paradigm shifting in Crohn's disease treatment? Well, we're being a little more aggressive up front. Using TNF inhibitors combined with a imuran or methotrexate before they become steroid dependent. And when we talk about biologics, there are so many niche biologics that are out there right now. I mentioned two of them. This anti-interleukin-12-23 antibody goes by the brand name Stellara. There's this anti-interleukin-23 called Skirizi. And on board exam, you probably will be picking TNF inhibitor first, and these will probably be other biologics that you could use if you probably fail a TNF inhibitor. So with that being said, a 35-year-old woman's hospitalized for severe relapse of Crohn's. An ileocolonic Crohn's disease was diagnosed three years ago, and it responded to optimized doses of Imuran and prednisone. During the past three disease flares, it necessitated a reduction of prednisone despite continuation of the azoprian, the Imuran. Her only medication now is the brand name Imuran. On exam, vital signs are within normal limits. The abdominal exam reveals right lower quadrant tenderness with no mass. Inorectal exam is normal. Abdominal CT shows only bowel wall thickening without significant luminal narrowing of the distal eight centimeters of the terminal ileum and proximal colon. Colonoscopy shows severe mucosal inflammatory changes with ulcerations in the terminal ileum with a surprise and proximal colon. And these are severe mucosal inflammatory changes. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? What do you want to do here, everyone? Should we blast it with more steroids? I don't think that's going to be the right answer. Should we add some hydroxychloroquine? Well, that doesn't really make an, a lot of sense. You know, when we talk about that medication, especially when we talk about IBD, should we change the patient's Imuran to just a metabolite very similar to that called 6MP? It doesn't really seem to help out with someone who's severe. Should we change the Imuran to sulfazalazine? doesn't really seem to be adding much here. I think this is someone who has a moderate to severe case refractory on steroids, on the Imuran, you probably need to add a what? Biologic. So the answer is going to be what? B. And of course, when we add that biologic, what are you going to do first? You're going to check for latent TB, check for hep C, check for hep B. And that is the right answer here. So let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about some ulcerative colitis. And what is the buzzwords here, everyone? It's going to be the inflammation limited to what? The mucosal, that superficial layer of colon. 
And let's talk about terminology, because when we talk about ulcerative colitis, knowing where in the colon you're going to have the pathology is so important because it's the route in which you give the, the treatment. So you can have ulcerative proctitis, where disease is limited to the rectum. You could have ulcerative proctosigmoiditis. You could have distal ulcerative colitis, disease beyond the rectum and proximal to the splenic flexure. Or of course, you could have the whole colon called pancolitis. And that's very important, everyone. You know, I remember when I was in med school, I always used to think that, oh, ulcerative colitis, the entire colon is inflamed, which is totally wrong. You've got to identify what parts of the colon are going to be involved. So just like Crohn's disease, we have a severity index. And we're going to, you know, based upon labs and history and physical, that we're going to call the ulcerative colitis mild, moderate, or severe. And of course, you know, we're going to look for some complications in the colon, massive hemorrhage, fulminant colitis, strictures. And of course, when we talk about ulcerative colitis, there's very specific colon cancer screening that we do for people with UC. So when we talk about the treatment of ulcerative colitis, separate from Crohn's disease, there is a role for five ASAs. And the most important thing is the route. How do we give it? So if someone comes in and has disease really to the rectum, ulcerative proctitis, the mainstay therapy is going to be topical ASAs that you could give like as a suppository. If it's going to be distal, well, we could use topical, but there's also a, a, a possibility of using oral agents. When we talk about pancolitis, of course, we'll consider using more oral 5-ASA medications there. And when do we start talking about oral steroids is if you're refractory to, of course, these 5-ASAs and for severe symptoms, you know. And when we talk about refractory UC, that's definitely not a good thing. These are going to be people who are symptomatic despite optimal doses of 5-ASAs combined with steroids, you know, and this can be both topical and systemic. And what do we do in these cases? Well, you know, I don't think this lecture time is long enough to talk about it, but you could consider a colectomy. In some institutions, they could induce a remission by giving cyclosporin, which is not a common thing to do. You definitely could think about biologics like TNF inhibitors here. Or I wanted to bring this up is that these small molecules known as these Janus kinase inhibitors, the ones I put here are going to be uh, brand name Zeljans or Rinvoke, got the FDA approval for ulcerative colitis. They're taken orally, which is good. And, you know, they do have potencies and side effects similar to biologics, but terminology-wise, we call these small molecules that can be taken orally. So how do we apply this knowledge to a board question? So we have a 22-year-old woman is evaluated for loose bloody stools up to three times a day with prominent fecal urgency. She has no other symptoms. On exam, vitals are within normal limits. The abdominal exam is normal. Anal rectal exam elicits mild discomfort. Labs show a normal CBC and LFTs. Results of testing for C. diff are negative. You definitely want to do that. Colonoscopy shows moderate inflammatory mucosal changes involving the rectum in a diffuse, continuous buzzword fashion characterized by edema, erythema, and erosions. Abrupt transition to normal appearing mucosa in the upper rectum is evident. And the remaining colon, you know, mucosa above the rectum is normal. So it's only disease in the rectum. Biopsies, which you should from the rectum, reveal moderate chronic colitis with Buzzword, crypt, architectural distortion, which of the following is the most appropriate?
appropriate treatment? What do you want to do? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm always looking at the time and everything. So I'm going to kind of feel this for the team. Is this someone you want to give with oral medications, whether they're steroids or 5-ASA? If it's only in the rectum, the answer is what? Probably not. You know what I mean? Do I want to jump to using a, you know, small molecule like a Zelljans right away? Probably not. So I definitely would probably consider doing a suppository because it's in the rectum. And what did I tell you for UC? Is there a stronger role for 5-ASAs? The answer is what? Yes. The answer is going to be what? A. So this is going to be in the picture where what this patient has, disease limited to the rectum. So let's do two more. 28-year-old woman is evaluated for a formal history of intermittent bright red blood per rectum and feelings of incomplete evacuation. She has loose and blood streaked bowel movements four or five times a day. She reports no other symptoms. Vital signs in the remainder of the physical exam are normal. Labs, hemoglobin is low for a 28-year-old, normal leukocyte count. They scope, as you should, diffuse symmetrical inflammatory mucosal changes characterized by erythema and friability with absent mucosal vascular pattern from the rectum to the mid-sigmoid. Biopsy specimens obtained from the sigmoid and rectum show chronic colitis. So, of course, you want to rule out things like C. diff, and the toxins are going to be negative. So we have diffuse and friable and superficial. All right, buzzwords. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? So based upon location, this is probably not going to be someone that I would use a what? Suppository on. It seems to be a little more, you know, uh, more diffuse than that. Is this someone I would probably think about oral agents in? Well, it's an option, but probably not first line. And would I use a small molecule like a Zelljans? This is Renvoke. Just not yet. You know, I think that this one being a little more higher up in the in the colon requires an enema versus a suppository. And if you had to choose between a 5-ASA enema or steroid, there's a stronger role for what? The 5-ASA. So the answer here, once again, is going to be what? A. And that's what when we talk about ulcerative colitis, I put this diagram here to show the different patchiness it can have. So the first question we had was the proctitis. Here we have proctosigmoiditis, and that's why giving the enema was the correct answer. Amazing. So let's do this 34-year-old man is evaluated for a relapse of ulcerative colitis, uh, unresponsive to increasing doses of 5-ASA, symptoms remitted after one week of prednisone. After tapering the prednisone, however, symptoms what? Return. Uh, on exam, vital signs are within normal limits. The abdomen is distended with left lower quadrant discomfort on deep palpation and no abdominal guarding. Results of TB and Hep B virus and stool enteric pathogens are all negative. They do something called a thiopurine methyltransferase enzyme. And why do you get this enzyme? Because you want to start, you know, azathioprine, Imuran, the brand name. Because if you lack this enzyme, you'll get a lot of the side effects of Imuran, like the GI upset and some of the lab abnormalities, like abnormalities in liver function and CBC. But this patient has a normal level of this enzyme. Colonoscopy shows changes consistent with ulcerative colitis from the rectum all the way to the splenic flexure. Biopsy specimens show severe active chronic colitis, and there's no evidence of CMV infection. And why do they worry about CMV? Lots of courses of steroids. So which of the following is the most appropriate treatment in this patient? Well, is this someone that maybe will use these 
oral 5-ASAs? The answer is no. Patients already on oral prednisone and getting worse. You know, is it time just to switch up the oral steroid from prednisone to budesonide? No, you're really not going to be benefiting from that. Are we just going to go ahead and just use a biologic by itself without another drug to block the effects of getting these antibodies? The answer is no. And because the patient's very severe, I would use the combination of a TNF inhibitor, a biologic, with a combination of a medication like an Imuran, help preventing these antibodies to help this patient feel better. So the answer here is going to be what? B. So in summary for IBD, I know I, I, really, I gave you like four or five questions. I really just know this is so high yield for the boards that what are my five basic steps for IBD? Clinical suspicion, history and physical, screening labs, exclude other similar diseases, especially acute infections, shigatoxin, C. diff. And I really hope from this spiel, it really does make a difference that not all IBD is created equally. Is it Crohn's disease? Is it ulcerative colitis? Localize the region of disease, you know what I mean? And of course, identifying those extraintestinal manifestations. So let's do, see if we can get two more in there and kind of squeeze one in or squeeze both of them in. This is a 42-year-old man. He is admitted to the hospital with the acute change in mental status and fever of two days duration. Medical history is non-contributory and he takes no meds. On exam, temperature is 100.8 Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 108 over 70. Heart rate of 104. Not to Kipnik and 96% on room air. He is agitated and disoriented to place and time. Petechia are noted on the shins. This can't be good. The remainder of the exam is normal. So they get labs and hemoglobin for a 42-year-old is low. CBC is a normal. Platelets are 44,000. That's definitely low. Creatinine is slightly elevated, but not monster elevated. And there's probably some hemolysis going on. That's why the LDH is 1,600. And of course, they do a Coombs test, and that's very important. It's a direct Coombs. So remember when we talk about a Coombs test, there are two types, direct and indirect. When you do a direct Coombs test, you're looking for antibodies directly on the red blood cell. So when you do an indirect test, which I don't order a lot of these, is when you're transfusing someone, and you want to know if there's going to be antibodies in that patient's serum. That's an indirect Coombs. So direct Coombs, we're looking for antibodies right on those RBCs itself, and the test is negative. So question, therapy should be immediately initiated, pending the results of which the following. And we have the ADAMS-13, coagulation studies, peripheral blood smear, stool culture, and testing for sugar toxins, stool culture for campylobacter. But I'm reading your mind that someone is saying, but Dr. Raj, I'm sensing a little fever, some mental status changes, some anemia, thrombocytopenia, and the creatinine's a smidgen elevated. Someone's yelling at me now, three letters, TTP. And you know what I want on that peripheral smear, just yell it out at me. Yeah, you want those schistocytes. The answer is going to be C. So before we talk about this, let me do one more question, and then I have a little chart, and then, then, we'll, then we'll call it a day after the chart, okay? So we have a 18-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department for abdominal cramping. Now, these two questions are married together, and you'll see why. So, 18-year-old man in the ED, abdominal cramping from bloody diarrhea six, for six days. Ooh. 
Uh, medical history is unremarkable. He takes no meds. On exam, he is a febrile. His blood pressure is low at 98 over 60, heart rate of 100, respiratory rate of 16, O2 sap is 98% on room air. His abdomen is tender without guarding or organomegaly, and the exam is otherwise unremarkable. So let's look at these labs. Wow, hemoglobin is going to be super low. Leukocyte count is 6,000. Platelets are low at 37,000. Creatinine is, now that's what I call bump. That's not like the K1.4 like the other side. This is 3.6 and then 18-year-old. That's renal failure pretty much. And of course, you get a UA. And what's the buzzword here? There's blood when they initially looked at it. You know, it read as blood, but there's no red blood cells there. There's almost no red blood cells, though it says plus three blood. So what's going on? They do a peripheral blood smear and they said it, schistocytes and scan platelets. And of course, the direct cooms has to be negative. So what is the most likely diagnosis here? An 18-year-old and diarrhea with anemia and thrombocytopenia and full-on renal failure? Yeah, this has to only be one thing, HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome. So why did I put these two here? Well, I put this here because I really want to talk about one thing. How do you evaluate thrombocytopenia? I think that's going to be my gift for everyone here. And then we're going to call it a day as far as this talk over here. So how do you approach a patient with thrombocytopenia? Well, number one, if they were to ask you on the boards, what is the best first initial diagnostic test for thrombocytopenia? The answer is peripheral smear. It just is. And you're going to ask me why. Why is that? Because you want to confirm the count. You want to know if they're truly thrombocytopenic. And that's why, you know, peripheral smear is always a great answer in the hematology section. So once you confirm that they're thrombocytopenic, you want to assess, are they bleeding? That's always important, right? Are they having mucotaneous bleeding? Or do they have easy bruising? And during that workup of the thrombocytopenia, grab that medication list. You know what I mean? Look for the medications that we think about associated with thrombocytopenia. And of course, a lot of this is based upon the timing. If they're suddenly in the hospital and I started an antibiotic and they're thrombocytopenic, maybe it's the antibiotic. Maybe it's going to be an infection. So timing is going to be so important. You want to document recreational drug use, alcohol use. You want to know about their diet, of course, if they're going to be a strict vegan vegetarian, so you think about B12 deficiency. And of course, their medical history is going to be tremendous. Do they have HIV, hep C, cirrhosis, splenomegaly from the cirrhosis? Do they have thyroid disorders? All these can be associated with thrombocytopenia. So taking a step back, now that I know they're thrombocytopenic, I put them in two categories. Are they thrombocytopenic because they're not producing the platelets? Or are they thrombocytopenic because we're destroying the platelets? So if the problem is decreased production, you're not making them, it could be a bone marrow infiltration. It could be a nutritional deficiency like B12, abnormalities in stem cell maturation like myelodysplastic syndrome, aplastic anemia, and of course there's other cytopenias also. Well, what do I want to focus on for the, this last uh, couple of questions is increased destruction. And when you increase the destruction of these platelets, it could happen in two ways. It could be immune-mediated or non-immune-mediated. If it's going to be immune-mediated, meaning there's antibodies destroying the platelets, what jumps to mind? ITP. What jumps to mind? HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. If it's going to be non-immune-mediated, what can do that? Well, a big spleen, cirrhotics, DIC, that consumptive coagulopathy. 
or the one they love on the board exams. That's why I gave two questions about this. That was my gift for everyone here today. I gave something called Maha. Now, Maha isn't the fish. You don't eat it. It stands for microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And there are two things I want to talk about, both TTP and HUS. So let me throw out a chart that I just have been so excited. That's why I kind of wanted to make sure I get to this right here. So that anytime someone has thrombocytopenia on the boards or on the wards, what are they going to ask you about? It's going to be the big four, ITP, TTP, HUS, and DIC. And, you know, when we talk about this chart on the, uh, on the y-axis, if I can use the word access, we have pathogenesis, platelets, hemoglobin, and the smear. ITP, everyone, is going to be antibody-mediated. But remember, meds can trigger ITP. ITP can be associated with CLL, lupus, HIV, hep C. And you know what? My question on the boards, if I had to write it, H. pylori is associated with ITP. When you have ITP, these platelets are extremely low. But you know what? The hemoglobin is going to be normal. And best first initial test is what? Peripheral smear, confirm the count. When we talk about TTP, let me just say this a million times. TTP is rare. Are you going to mention it? on your differential probably every time someone has <laughs> low platelets probably but it's very rare so what is the take-home message here i love questions on the boards about what is the, the pathogenesis of ptt of ttp there's deficiency of something called adams 13 and because there's a deficiency of it or there's low activity of it you have high levels of von willebrand's factor and when you get these high levels of von willebrand's factor it causes clumping of these platelets so what happens is that these rbcs will hit it they shatter you get what hemolysis you get low hemoglobin and how do you get ttp well two main ways genetics or they can be acquired sometimes and when you work up ttp of course not only do you check the adams 13 level you also check the activity and platelets will be low hemoglobin hematocrit will be low and of course on spiracy what schistocytes for hemolytic uremic syndrome, think about a young patient with diarrhea. And of course, the classic hemolytic uremic syndrome is going to be a diarrhea induced by that shiga toxin from the E. coli 0157H7. There is something called atypical HUS, which isn't common. It's atypical because the history has no diarrhea. It's atypical because when we talk about the etiology behind it, it's complement mediated. And I'll We'll mention there's a very, very, very expensive drug called eculizumab that we use to treat atypical HUS. Now, when you look at the platelets and hemoglobin, they both will be low. And of course, once again, they're going to have schistocytes on peripheral smear. When we talk about DIC, everyone, this is a intervascular, you know, clotting problem. So clotting factors are going to be what? Deplete. You're going to have an elevated PT, PTT, INR, you know, of course, you're going to get these clotting that will, sh will, will, that will consume all the platelets. So the platelets are going to be low. You're going to have hemolysis, and that's why the hemoglobin is going to be low, and you're going to see these schistocytes. And then my last slide, because I know I went over time a little bit, is on these same disorders that we just talked about over here, I also put down on these big four, ITP, TTP, HUS, and DIC, what happens to the creatinine? What happens to the D-dimer, the PT-PTT, INR, fibrinogen, and what are some treatments? So back to ITP once again. ITP doesn't affect your kidneys. 
you just shouldn't have abnormalities and D-dimers and fibrinogens and PT, PTT, INRs. And how do we treat ITP? Well, first line is going to be steroids and IBIG, steroids and IBIG. Then second line treatment will be something called rituximab. You know, and what does rituximab work? It works on B cells. It prevents them from making antibodies. Antibodies targeted against what? Those platelets. If it's going to be TTP, TTP, you know, even though we part of that pentad, you mentioned renal failure, you know, TTP doesn't affect the kidneys as much. If we talk about really affecting the kidneys and causing renal failure, what do I think about? HUS. So think about a slight bump in the creatinine. TTP doesn't affect the coagulation cascade. So D-dimers and PT, PTTs, INR should be normal. Fibrinogen should be normal. And how do we treat TTP? The answer is plasma exchange. Many people always ask me, well, what about phoresis? You know, what is the difference between exchange and phoresis? It's the volume. A phoresis is a very small volume. And because this could be life-threatening, we do a plasma exchange. Now, after we do plasma exchange, what are some other options? You can think about steroids, rituximab. And of course, there are other drugs like acalplacizumab that you can use also for TTP. But once again, remember, TTP is rare. HUS, now look at the creatinine here, super elevated. And HUS is not a problem with coagulation, normal D-dimers, normal, you know, PT, PTT, INRs, normal fibrinogen. And if it's really just your typical HUS, how do we treat it? Supportive, supportive, supportive. If you have this atypical HUS, well, I mentioned this drug, eculizumab, and that's got FDA approval specifically for atypical HUS. Think about no history of diarrhea, complement mediated. And of course, the last thing I wanted to mention is going to be what? When we talk about DIC. And it's no surprise there that when we talk about DIC, it shouldn't directly affect the kidney. Creatinine should be normal. But where are going to be the abnormalities? When we talk about coagulation, we talk about clotting. So D-dimer is going to be what? It's going to be high. The PT, PTT, INR are going to be what? High. And what is going to be that lab we, we think about? That fibrinogen, right? And what is that fibrinogen going to be? It's going to be what? It's going to be low. You know what I mean? And of course, someone's going to say, if you have a low fibrinogen, should I give some cryoprecipitate? Well, it depends. You always have to take the history, the physical, and what's going on with the patient. And when we talk about how do we treat DIC, of course, DIC could be acute, it could be chronic, but the take-home message is always going to be what? Treat the underlying cause. And as an ICU doctor, do I see DIC secondary to sepsis all the time? The answer is yes. And what do I treat? I treat the sepsis. I control the source control, antibiotics, you know, so it's going to be important. And with that being said, I'm not going to, you know, I, I know I, I kind of milked it, but I really hope everyone enjoyed this. What did we learn about today? Sepsis, ventilators, the importance of IBD distinction, what's Crohn's disease and what's ulcerative colitis? How do we work up thrombocytopenia? So thank you for spending time with me today. I had a blast sharing this with you and I hope to see you live one day. Good luck with everything. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.